The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the all-new Film Weekly podcast from the Guardian film team. Each week we'll be bringing you our thoughts on the week's big and small releases in one bumper-sized megacast. This week I'm joined by Peter Bradshaw and Henry Barnes and we'll be searching for a kitty called Keanu, fighting the power and milking the cows in the middle of summertime and searching for justice in Tottenham in the hard stop. But first up, bro dudes, cover your ears. We're here to talk about Paul Feig's all-female reboot of Ghostbusters. It's been the subject of online scorn ever since the casting was announced, with man-boys on the attack because of the film's increased estrogen. We have a gift. We see what no one else is willing to see. We do things others can't do. Ghostbusters. If there's a paranormal problem, we're the ones to answer the call. Hello. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This week finally sees the release of the new take on Ivan Reitman's 1984 sci-fi caper, Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon as four unlikely New Yorkers attempting to stop a ghoulish apocalypse. Now Peter, Paul Feig has shown himself to be a skilled director of R-rated comedies, especially when they star Melissa McCarthy, with Bridesmaids of the Heat and Spy all proving to be critical and commercial hits. With a lower rating and a higher budget, does he still bring the lols? Yes, absolutely he does. Um, I think there's been a huge amount of second guessing and third guessing and fourth guessing of the subject of identity politics and what we're supposed to think about this. I just sat down to it and thought it was very funny. I don't... I, I, I feel like saying, what is the problem? I mean, if somebody else has got a problem, then why should we have a problem? I think it is strange that the trailer was so unfunny because I sat down and watched the trailer and thought, actually, that trailer isn't very good. But maybe they were just saving the good stuff for the film. And what's wrong with that? And why are we so obsessed with trailers anyway? Why are we so underemployed we have to talk about trailers? I thought it was just terribly funny. I thought it was uh, Katie Tippold's script that she co-wrote with Fig was very, very funny. I thought they were all really good as well. I hadn't a single problem. The only thing that I thought was possibly slightly disappointing is the slightly overextended action sequences in which nothing funny was going on. But I didn't think it was unfunny. I didn't think they were trying to be funny and failing. I just thought that they considered that this was an action sequence and so they didn't want any funny stuff in it. And I could have done with just a little bit more, you know, sort of humorous material speckled into those stretches as well. I didn't have a problem with it at all. I think it was terribly funny. I thought it was kind of exciting. And very, very good-natured. It was a kind of very likeable, lovable movie. Uh, and so I, I, I thought it was great. I just signed up to it from the word go. Henry, there's been quite a lot of outrage over the choice of female leads, obviously, and some people have also just said they're angry because it's an 80s classic being remade or be rebooted. Uh, does this film sort of justify its existence or is it just a schedule filler? Yeah, I think it absolutely it justifies its existence. Unfortunately, for better or worse, we have to talk about the controversy around it and the outrage yeah. that people feel. And I think a lot of that is completely unjustified. The, the one argument that people who say, oh, I'm not sexist, do try and bring forward is that, oh, this is replacing the original Ghostbusters and removing the legacy that that film built which is wrong on two counts. First of all, the original Ghostbusters legacy was put to the sword by Ghostbusters 2, an innumerable amount of crappy animations that came after it. It's yeah. not like this is a kind of rock-solid legacy that they've ruined for good. Yeah. Second of all, 
if we were going to say that, we could stop any number of thousands of projects that have been put forward by Hollywood. And some of those are good remakes and some of those are bad remakes. I think the, the, the criticism about this film, the mass outrage, is purely sexist. And I think this film, on its own merit, exists as an interesting, fun remake. And as not, I'm not a huge fan of the original Ghostbusters, but I, I can appreciate what it does. This film takes that, runs with it, makes it interesting on its own terms. And I don't think they actually the fact that women really comes into it the, the point where it does come into it is just where they kind of slyly mention it where they're looking at a youtube video and saying bitches ain't going to be attacking mm. no ghosts and and make a comment about it in the film itself which they kind of have to do it, but it's not like this film is a strident pro-female film it's just a good comedy film with female lead stars one tiny thing i would add is that for me the only moment when it slightly wobbled is the idea of inverting the secretary and making it a dumb male beefcake that's the only thought i thought the only moment where i thought well, that's a little bit pedantic. I thought that's coming close to a kind of slightly kind of pointed, hey, guess what? We are making great play with some sort of quasi-feminist light statement here. That's Chris me, Hemsworth playing that's the role. That's Chris I'm so mm. sorry. Yes, that's Chris Hemsworth. But again, he had some very funny material. But I thought that was the only time when it was a little bit too on the nose. But as I say, I'm absolutely with him. I just thought it was just like a remake. Any remake or reboot, uh, it just, it, it really, it took picked up the ball and ran with it in a different direction in the same spirit as the new Star Trek movie or something like that. I mean, I thought that was really what was what was going on here. Uh, and it's a shame that it's been kind of swallowed up, almost swallowed up by this radioactive white noise, this ugly kind of Gamergate sort of tendency who have been indulged and rewarded, frankly, by all of us in the mainstream press to an extraordinary degree. It's just a very funny remake. I think the Chris Hemsworth character is really interesting and funny. I mean, he is a little bit on point, but he's, he's only on point in the same way. And I think this is what Feig and everybody was trying to do in that Sigourney Weaver's character is basically used as a tool by being taken over by this alien Zool in mm. the first Ghostbusters. Yes. And Kevin has a similar, sorry, spoilers, but Kevin has a similar role in, in this film. And there's, But there's also the thing which I think is important, is on the nose, but is, is crucial as well, is that he's still a figure of white male privilege. There's a bit where he's, um, he's he has a sandwich in his hand, he throws it away and says, can I get a little help here? And somebody throws it straight back to him. It's mm. immediately this thing of like, even though he's stupid, even though he's completely facile and useless, useless as a character they're first of all still besotted by him and second of all he's always going to get the breaks because mm. he's a white man so uh, it is a little bit on the nose as peter says but it's still important to have that stuff in there i think see i was quite whelmed by it and i really wish i'd liked it as much as you guys did because I, I love paul feig i love the four four actresses a lot um but i felt the script wasn't really sharp enough and katie dippold uh, was previously known for parks and recreation and the heat which are both a lot sharper than this was i felt as if there were many scenes which had sort of placeholders for jokes they said we'll put this here now we won't use this joke but we'll come back later and put something funnier in and the jokes didn't really come for me there were some funny moments but there were so many scenes that could have been a lot funnier um and i think what part of the problem was is that paul feig is trying to sort of sanitize what he usually does for a studio a franchise movie and a pg-13 so the best moments with Melissa mccarthy who i think was quite underused in this film as when it's got this kind of loose, foul-mouthed, improvised feel. And I think because Sony were probably breathing down their necks, there was less wiggle room. So I thought they were kind of trapped by, like Peter was saying, these massive action sequences. And the effects, which are quite good, but to me, the blend of comedy and horror, which is very hard to do, never really gels for me. And also the female friendship didn't really convince me either. And they all know each other. They've all worked together before. That should have been the best part of the film because Paul Feig has done that so well in all his previous films. But I never really bought them as a team. I don't know. I d this idea that, that I mean, I've heard it before. My, uh, my friend and colleague Catherine Child has made the same 
same sorts of comments that the, the friendship didn't work. I wasn't looking for a plausible, psychologically readable friendship between them. All I wanted was, I, I, I don't know, I just wanted comedy. I wanted gags. Now, obviously, you didn't think they were funny, and I did. So there we are. I didn't think they were plausible, but then I don't think, you know, the Marx Brothers had a plausible fraternal relationship either, and I sort of thought they were funny too. I mean, I thought there was some... Terrifically funny stuff there. I loved his dog called Mike Hat. I, I did like that. <laughs> that, bit, yeah. that was absolutely. There's also some really there's some lame bits too when they, when they go to that first haunted house and Kate McKinnon's just bizarrely holding a, a can of Pringles, quite obviously for product placement, and they say, "Will you stop eating them?" She's like, "But how can I resist these salty crisps?" And that yeah. kind of parabolas. Like it's, it's parabolas had, it's is what someone... she says, and that's what I think <laughs> makes it funny. If I will make say so, <laughs> she says the word parabolas, and that's where the, that's where the little bell rings Oof. for me. It, it was. The, it, I just felt like there was a constant wrestle between trying to appease Sony, who are desperately in need of a, a new franchise, and for Paul Feig to do his own thing. And ultimately, I think there were there were there were scenes where you could see that come through, but ultimately the studio kind of, to me, neutered it a bit too much. I, d- I, d- I don't know. I didn't I didn't get that. I honestly didn't. I mean, I was on the I was kind of on hyper alert, as I say, second guessing third guessing myself to saying you know I'm not, I'm not going to like this am I I don't know and I just sort of relaxed into it from the word go I wish I'd I wish I'd heard more of Ray Parker Jr's theme song to be honest with you I wanted to hear that from the word go for about 10 minutes I think, they, I think they we dodged that quite nicely yeah. actually yeah go for it Peter. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm not going to do it no. but speaking of McKinnon I think I think she's very much the Marmite performance in this film like she really goes for it and I thought she was great but I, I can see why she would be an irritant to a lot of people she really really pushes it to 11 in this I got some pretty cool stuff cooking up over here if you want to just turn your head um I improved beam accuracy by adding a plasma shield to the RF discharge chamber I have cryo cooler to reduce helium boil off and to dub it all off we got a freaking Faraday cage and also, uh, talking about studio, uh, the studio neutering some of it, apparently her character is supposed to be gay in the film. She's quite lusty towards of, her fellow I mean, You can kind of tell it in certain scenes, I think. Yeah, but Feig has held back from saying that explicitly, allegedly, because Sony have said to him, don't say there's an openly gay character in the film, which is interesting in itself, and I don't know why they would have a problem with it. But, um, it's quite a gay summer with that Independence Day in Star Trek, and but Star Trek all, all done very gay secretly, character as well. a little bit yeah. cowardly. It is a little bit cowardly, and it's a, it's a shame that Feig hasn't, because he's quite an outspoken guy, hasn't felt that he can say that on the publicity tour if she is an openly gay character again that's important it shouldn't be but it is important. but they're worried about box office I mean they're, they're predicting this weekend it's going to make about 50 million in the states which for a film of this budget isn't that great because of all this bro dude hate so the more they if they had a lesbian angle then it's going to turn off even more ridiculous guys who are so offended by it already so um and that um, sony have a lot of banking on this doing well yeah, I think it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because you get down that road of we shouldn't be talking about this stuff, but we are. And if we are going to talk about it, we are going to say it's an all-female cast and that's important, it's important there's an openly gay person in there, then you could probably extend that to say go and see this film for that reason. It's a good film. It's an interesting film. It's a film that contains actors that need the leg up because of their gender unfortunately has a character in it that is gay and we want to see more cinema like that. So I would say go and see Ghostbusters. And from the East Coast over to the West Coast for another comedy starring some much-loved sketch show stars. This time it's Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, better known as Key and Peele, who star in their first proper big screen vehicle. Hey man, how are you? How are you doing? Nothing makes sense anymore. Are you okay? Maisie broke up with me. Well? It's gonna be okay. You're right, Clarence. I want you to meet Keanu. No. <laughs> oh my God, that's the cutest guy I've ever seen in my life. 
Peel stars as a slacker recently dumped by his girlfriend who finds a reason to get up in the morning after adopting a cute kitten he calls Keanu. When the cat is kidnapped, he must team up with his best friend played by Key to track him down. The search leads them to a local gangster and a rather dangerous misunderstanding. Peter, Key and Peel's show isn't particularly well known to the UK. Uh, do you think this film works as a, as a good calling card? I have to say no. I mean, I, I really didn't know anything about their show. By the time I sat down to this movie, I really was, I came into it totally blind. And... I wouldn't know anything about them other than what you could discover on YouTube. I, I have to say, I was totally baffled by them. I think it's so, really something where you have to have made a fan-following investment to jump into this film because I, f I found their, their shtick, their relationship between the two of them, how, how tough they were supposed to be, how macho they were supposed to be, how geeky they were supposed to be, how slackerish they were supposed to be, how bourgeois they were supposed to be. They were all kind of baffling aspect of it. I didn't find it baffling in a very funny way. I mean, there are one or two funny things in it, but I, I, I don't know what it is. I found myself floundering. I, I, and I, I'm prepared to admit that it's partly my fault. If I'd have put the hours in or the minutes in and settled down to their sketch show, which you could do, I, I was a bit baffled with it. I felt myself thinking, what do we in the UK care about these sort of American stars whose TV work really isn't very, wasn't at all known really here. So I was kind of... I don't know. I tuned out a bit, to be honest. And see, I was uh, a kind of a fan of their, their work before. I've seen some okay. sketches online, their show a oh, few right. times. Okay. And it, in a way, I think that didn't help because oh, right. it reminded me a bit in the, in the way of Trainwreck last year in that you have this quite smart, subversive sketch show star right. who is then put into a big screen vehicle, right. which is quite okay. formulaic and doesn't contain the same level of depth as, as a lot of their sketches do. So their sketches kind of riff on a lot of interesting issues. And to me, the film was this kind of almost 80s comedy um, yeah. of... of, of um, identity a mistaken identity um there is one idea which i don't think you liked but i liked the sort of idea of uh, perception of black masculinity which was covered a bit in get hard when kevin hart was this businessman who everyone thought knew about prison well the white people yeah. did because he was black yeah. and in this and uh, there's this assumption that they're street smart and they're they're edgy and because they're black and they have to yeah. pretend that they're tougher than they are for a lot of the film and that is kind of funny and that's, that's been riffed on by sketches quite a few times before and those are the funniest moments where they're trying to be cooler than they are I understood that I mean I, I thought it was funny when they refer to you you sound like a Richard Pryor you sound like Richard Pryor impersonating a white <laughs> yeah. man and it is funny because what I did get as a sort of white British bloke is the idea that they can switch between voices they can sound like gangbangers and tough guys or they can sound like bourgeois people who drive vans and, and love George Michael and love George Michael that was quite a good scene yeah it Michael. was quite a good scene I sort of thought that it went on for about 165% of the time that it yeah. kind of needed I thought yeah I get it it's fine and now let's get on to the next gag really and it went on for a hell of a long time although I did think the idea of him whacking Andrew Ridgely that he kind of yeah he's <laughs> taken him out Andrew Ridgely's been taken out by George Michael that's the reason why nobody's ever heard of him anymore I wanted to like it and I still I kind of question myself because I think maybe if I'd have made the investment I could have got behind it but as I say you might be right it might be an Amy Schumer thing you might think no I still won't like it and you shouldn't it. have to really when, no. you, when you go into blind no you film. see you, you, you shouldn't really you think well you know do I have to take an exam at the, at the box office before <laughs> I'm allowed in you know it's that kind of fan thing and I slightly resent the tyranny of fandom in a way their chemistry, I think, is, is strong. And I wanted to, I, I left the film thinking, I hope they get a smarter project next. Because I, yeah. I think they worked well as a duo still, even when the script was being quite formulaic. I thought that you could tell, I believe their friendship at least. Yeah, I, I thought they were interesting as an odd couple. 
and I quite like I quite like slacker comedy. I quite like stuff about people doing nothing all day but lying on the sofa and waiting for other people, mainly sort of to do with drugs, coming round. So close quite to good. home, isn't it? Peter? But yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's my life. And, uh, and as ever with cute. as ever with drug comedy or drink, <laughs> anything to do with drink and drugs, they always start them off by doing it a hell of a lot in the first scene, and then never ever again. I mean, there's lots of stuff about bongs and oh my god, and then never never again. And then he's absolutely clean for the rest of the film, except when he's got to go back to that. Uh, but without with, spoiling, with I think the ending is at least realistic. I, I don't want to spoil, but, <laughs> no. but, but, but it, realistic in a way that there's consequences. Because in these yeah. kind of films, there's usually no consequences. At least there is actual some consequence for their actions. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it's an example of probably sketch show comedy where they've got an idea for a first act, a little bit of an idea for a second act, a third act, which sort of makes sense on a kind of bog standard nuts and bolts narrative level. But otherwise, there's no there's no real comedy pizzazz to it um, so you know what I'd love to see it happening again I'd love to see their show uh, but I can't say that I'm a fan of the movie not really now while the British summer might have been a washout there's plenty of heat radiating from French drama summertime it's the new film from leaving director Catherine Corsini and stars Isia Higelin as a small town girl moving to 1970s Paris and falling in with a radical group of feminists while falling in love with their charismatic leader played by Cécile de France Te quiero Te quiero Mi amor, mi amor. Si tu débloques, tu vas pas retourner ton père là-bas. Mais c'est trop pour ma mère. Henry, were you hot under the collar for this one? You say there's plenty of heat, Ben. God, this is like cold custard for me. This was, wasn't sexy. It was dull. It was very, and sorry, very, very, very French about how it, it showed off its sexual politics <laughs> and talked about lesbianism in the 1970s. Um, and inevitably, because part of it's set in the rural country, in the countryside, you have to have uh, scenes of people bailing hay and a calfing, um, which is, you know, as cinematic language for farming is kind of done to death now. Um, it reminded me a teeny bit of From the Land of the Moon, which was Nicole Garcia's film at Cannes this year, in which uh, Marion Cotillard discovers herself sexually in the middle yeah. of a hay bale. And it just it kind of was as exciting and sensuous as that. I, I thought there was a really great performance from Cécile de France, who plays the kind of urbanite who's relocated to the countryside and tries to help her girlfriend come out to her family and the local community. And it did have some interesting things to say about that environment in terms of um, the, the countryside being somewhere where it's more difficult to be gay because it's a smaller community. But then it's some, some of the things it was saying about that and were quite trite as well. It was saying that... Parisians are inevitably going to be urbane and sophisticated. Bit snobbish about the it was a little bit snobbish. I mean, but it is set in the 1970s, so you have to take that into yeah. account as well. It just felt a bit flat and dry for me, and not particularly hot or sexy or interesting, and ultimately not that romantic either. Because Peter, given that the film starts off with these vibrant scenes of of, of feminists protesting for their rights, then ends up being this farm-based romance that feels quite slight by the time it ends, and also yeah. quite formulaic in some of the final scenes. Were you invested in the romance at all? Um, I kind of was. I thought it was well acted. I agree. I like the two leads. It looked very nice. It's sort of well acted and well performed. And it's, as I say, it's it's very French in that it doesn't feel that there's a problem with anything. Even when it's about transgression, there isn't a problem with anything. No, they're not really, they are not challenged. We are not challenged. We know everything's coming from. We get it. Uh, and I thought it was well made. I thought it was a bit sort of Mills and Booney, really, to be honest with you. The romance didn't really challenge. It wasn't, I didn't get the sense of tectonic plates really shifting, to be honest with you. And there was a sense at the end of, well, you know, there are country folk and there are city folk and ne'er the twain shall meet in the end. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the conservatism in a way with the film. But I thought it was kind of well done. I mean, I thought it was done with a certain 
candor in a way. It's the sort of thing that only the French... It, I'm, I'm, I've sort of given up wondering whether or not the British or the Americans can do sort of ooh-la-la kind of er softcore eroticism <laughs> in the same way because we can't or we won't or we haven't uh, and it's just not in our DNA and maybe it's rubbish anyway, really. Maybe we just have this Anglo-Saxon sense that there's something dodgy and tricky about it and maybe there is. But uh, the French just do it uh, and they can sort of get away with it. It's just, that it's just a kind of style that French cinema has. Uh, and I, I've almost lost hope of understanding why. But it's certainly carried off with a great deal of élan, dare I say it, dare I use a French word. But there is something pretty conservative about this film. For all its avowed intention to transgress, it's a pretty conservative movie. I want to see Mike Lee's Ooh La La film. Yeah, Ooh La La, c'est ça. I do think that also the, the narrative meat is ignored in a way. I think, I think you're right, the second half of Going to the Countryside is not particularly interesting seeing these two women battle over their relationship in a restrictive environment. What is perhaps more interesting is the women's rights movement in Paris at the time, which yeah. I imagine was fairly full-blooded. And there was a lot of conflict there about women actually trying to find a place for themselves, in, even in a city that's supposed to be sophisticated and, and a place that is going to be open to them. If you'd kept the romance there, I think perhaps it might have been a bit more interesting. But yeah, it just dwindles off into the countryside and gets lost. Or even how it impacts women in, in the small community too, because there's, there's one very blunt scene where they talk about women's rights to the local women and they say oh I have my husband's wage hmm. and that's it you don't really understand how the women in the small town might think about their future or their rights it's very focused on everyone in Paris wants to be yeah. progressive and everyone in these small towns just is happy with their yeah there's their no rights. reflection on either side yeah I mean the sexual politics and politics generally in France it's very reactionary uh, and the film glances glances into that and glances away a bit um, it, as ever with some of these films this is a film Directed and co-written by Catherine Corsini. And as ever, you're left to wonder, gosh, I wonder, is it autobiographical? I wonder how much of it is autobiographical. And I wonder if Catherine Corsini is entirely in control of what it is about, in what it re reveals or doesn't reveal about her. Uh, very often with these movies, I want to say, sit, OK, sit down and tell me about your own life, Catherine. Tell me, what, what is this all about? Because I bet you anything you like, it will be more difficult and more complex and more interesting than what that movie is telling us. And we're taking the Eurostar from France back to London for this week's final film, poignant documentary The Hard Stop, to look at the death of Mark Duggan, a man shot by a police officer in 2011, which then led to riots across the country. The film follows two of Duggan's friends as they cope with life in Tottenham without him and the impact his death has on the community. Peter, this is, I believe, the first theatrical release to cover the riots. And given all the anger and grief involved, do you think director George Ampensad does a skilled job in keeping things even-handed and objective? Yes, I think to some extent. I think it... Uh, it chose to concentrate on the two guys, uh, Curtis and Marcus, who were Mark Duggan's best friends, and their lives. One of them was involved in the riots that later degenerated into looting, and one of them stayed out of it. And so you have these twin realities. He goes, I think, 12 to 18 months in, I think it's Pentonville, and the other one stays out, fails to find a job, gets a boring job in telesales in Norwich. And the interesting thing is that life outside prison and life in prison somehow doesn't seem very different. There's something so grim, and I think the film latches onto that quite interesting thing. Police station on my right, you understand? This is where we all gathered up for the peace protest, you understand? We've gone to the police station, basically demanding answers to why Mark had been shot. Stood out there for six hours for them to turn us away and tell us to clear the streets. 
got just blown away, so I said to myself, before I leave this high road, I'm gonna mash up one of these police officers. I've got to make one point about this, this, this movie, is that since the riots, there has been a series of very interesting investigative reports by a reporter called David Rose in the Mail on Sunday about the not now notorious Trident operation by the Met. And he's made the point that the killing of Mark Duggan was an almost predictable byproduct of how it was bungled and mismanaged. And basically, the police were running much more serious gangsters and criminals as informants. And there was one particular guy, I'm not sure we're allowed to mention his name, who owned the gun. I mean, this, this gun, the, the kind of backstory of this gun, the gun that Mark Duggan threw away, uh, appeared to throw away in a panic, that is now pretty well established. Uh, and the police seem to be protecting much more serious people, effectively at Mark Duggan's expense. Uh, and as I say, these were reports which were carried in the mail on Sunday. This isn't a kind of lefty anti-police newspaper we're talking about. And I was a bit disappointed that the film made no mention of this. It's very substantial reporting into the grotesque mismanagement of the Met's Trident operation. Uh, and it perhaps could have said a bit more about how we tend to take everybody at their face value. We tend to take the, the press particularly, you know, these sorcerer-eyed kind of mainstream journalists learning to say things like the Tottenham Man Dem crew. You can hear them say, oh, my God, you know, this, 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 this terrifyingly exotic, scary lingo that they've mastered. And they've been lured into a kind of wrong way of thinking about it, that the YouTube braggadocio, show, what does it actually mean? And of course, it suits everyone's book to pretend that Mark Duggan was a, was a, a tough guy and a criminal, when in fact, he seems to have been a small timer with only a few possession convictions. So I think the movie does a great job in telling you about people's lives, the kind of ambient story around the movie, and also the history from Broadwater Farm to the present day. That, that, that is not just a standalone event. It's continued in the lives of the community there and in the paranoid ranks, in a way, of the Met until, until the present day. But I, I think there's some more things it perhaps could have said about the, about the Trident operation. Henry the Reese seems pretty timely given the recent spate of shootings in the US. It's difficult to watch this film and not feel like the situation is rather hopeless. Did you manage to get anything positive out of the film? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, a little caveat that this, this episode does feel a bit like us talking about issues that we are not, yeah. <laughs> not personally involved in, yeah. women, gay rights and, and black issues. Um, but no, I mean, obviously it's an issue that affects us all. And this film plugs into that really well. And it is a hopeful film in that the narrative it's painting is one of recognition and redemption. So Marcus finds religion and is finding a way to build a new life for himself through that. Curtis is shown on this kind of Homeric odyssey to find a job yeah. in modern Britain, which to me felt like a better version of I, Daniel Blake, I in agree. a sense, in that it's showing the real struggle that goes into finding a job in Britain, it, whether you have a criminal record or not. I mean, Curtis makes a point of saying the, the, the stuff where they tell you that you won't be judged by your criminal record is total bollocks. But, you know, you imagine that this could happen to anyone who's unemployed in Britain today and presumably will get more and more tough as, as we go on. But yeah, it's hopeful in that regard. But what it's what it's really talking about, and and I do acknowledge Peter's um, what he's saying that there is an absence in the film. But what I think this film is really talking about 
is the history of relationships between the two communities. So it's between the black community and places like in Broadwood's farm and the police, essentially. And the idea that these communities are often now formed by their antagonism to the police. You get an identity because you are against the police and your gang, whether that be an actual violent gang or just a gang of friends, is defined by that relationship against authority. And that it's up to the police as the people who are the the higher power the the power above these people to go into these communities and start understanding them better and talking to them as people and and as and as communities and importantly sending officers that aren't just white into these areas as well and not doing that just when somebody gets shot or when there's a riot and that's a systemic failure that has happened again and again and again and what that what this film shows really well is that whether it's 1984 with the with the riots there whether it's Brixton whether it's London riots the police have never really worked out a way to talk to people in these communities and understand the issues that they're facing. And it, maybe the film's a little romantic about that, a little bit, uh, a little bit too much on Curtis and Marcus's side. But at the same time, it raises that vitally important point, which is something that we all need to address. I think it's important to show that the history too, because I think it's quite easy for someone to say, you know, when a when a black person gets stopped by the police, why don't they just comply with what the police ask them to do? And this film shows you, I think we need to be reminded, there's a massive history that we don't always know about of you know the way they've been treated, the way their parents have been treated, how they see police. And I think this film does really show you, um, especially going back to the, the history of, um, I think it's PC Blakelock who was the mm. yeah. policeman who yes, died. Exactly. And I think it's important to really show that history because I think that a lot of people don't understand that there is a big history behind these sort of attacks. Yeah, and that's how people like Marcus and Curtis are are born, basically. They're born into this environment of distrust Mm. and born into this idea that the police are there not to serve them, but to antagonise them and to make life difficult for them. And you can't blame them. And you can't blame them for that. And even, actually, I was talking to George Ampanza when we were interviewing him for this film, and he was saying, as a middle-class black guy, it was interesting going into that environment because he wasn't familiar with it. But, you know, as a black man in Britain, he's had harassment from the police, been stopped in his car, Mm. and he says, you are very aware that you have to be very polite to them call them officer make sure that you are not stepping out of any kind of boundaries in a way that we as white men probably wouldn't think about when we're spoken to so again that film is very is great for an audience that isn't black in unveiling that kind of discrimination which you are aware of but you need reminding of every day the hard stop along with the other films we talked about this week is in cinemas now remember to check out theguardian.com forward slash film for in-depth reviews of all the week's releases as well as the latest news features and trailers you can also like us on facebook follow us on twitter and subscribe to the new film weekly podcast on itunes to end this week's show i'm going to leave you with a quote from one of the more irate ghostbusters reviews there is not a single male character in here that a young boy can look up to yet another disturbing trend in today's culture where people feel a need to make men look bad in order to elevate women goodbye For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.